0: Our New Testament readings this morning are taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul addressing the people of the church in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 to 23. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Well, good morning again, everybody. How you doing? That good? Cool. You guys deserve a gold star in heaven today for coming to church through the pouring rain. Uh, Man, a beautiful day out there. Um, All right. I want to talk about both of our New Testament passages Because I really love both of these texts. So basically what I'm going to do is divide my sermon in half. The first half will be dedicated to the Matthew text that we just read, read, the calling of the first disciples, and then the second half will be dedicated to the 1 Corinthians text where Paul tells the wonderfully hot mess of a church in Corinth to have no divisions among themselves. And in order to discuss these two important texts, I need to talk about two obviously applicable things. Darth Vader and sports rivalries. Are we ready? Awesome, okay, so first, Darth Vader. As you all know, I am a pretty big Star Wars fan. I wouldn't say I love all the Star Wars movies equally, and I have very mixed feelings about J.J. Abrams these days, but overall, I love me a galaxy far, far away. Back in college, when I was playing football, the sports information department at UNC would do this fun little survey every year so they could put fun factoids and try to make our bios personal online. And one of the questions was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would it be? And my answer was the force. Now, I know that the force is not a superpower, right? It's a force binding all things, and some people are sensitive to it, and others are less so. But nevertheless, that was my answer, and I'm pretty sure I'm the only football player that ever put that as my answer. Also, thank you for the congratulations. I, yeah. uh, also, when my children were born, both of them, I was wearing this T-shirt, on the day they were born, both of them. Because, listen, I know the Force and the Jedi aren't actually real things, but who knows, right? Why tempt fate just in case the Force might be strong with them because I have my T-shirt on. Also, both of our family dogs, Sky and Finn, are named after Star Wars-themed characters, Sky is short for Skywalker, and Finn is for FN-2187. So I love me some Star Wars, but there's always one thing that I've lamented about my relationship to Star Wars. And it's that I never got to be legitimately surprised by this. Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father.
0: He told me enough! He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. No. It's
1: not true.
0: That's impossible! Search your feelings. You know it to be true.
1: Yeah! Feel free to give a round of applause for that. So anyways, I was born in 1981, four years after the original Star Wars movie came out and one year after The Empire Strikes Back. So there was never a time that I didn't know that Darth Vader was Luke's father. I learned that through cultural osmosis, long before I ever sat down to watch the movies on VHS. Kids, ask your parents. And of course, I loved the movies anyway, but I often wonder what it might have been like to be sitting in a theater in 1980 with no idea what was coming. As Luke stands in peril with his hand chopped off, clearly no match for Darth Vader, and in that moment here, you killed my father. No, I am your father. That's so awesome. I mean, it's not like Game of Thrones, right, where pretty much everyone in the world had already theorized that Jon Snow was a Targaryen years before it was revealed on the show, and then it turned out not to mean anything anyway. Or, like the rise of Skywalker, where they try to make this dramatic family reveal, but it feels super awkward and contrived because Disney, somehow with all their bajillions of dollars, isn't smart enough to know that you actually need a cohesive script ahead of time for a trilogy to work together. Who would have thunk it? But this, in Empire Strikes Back, was a legitimate surprise, and it made sense. It was like a truth hiding in plain sight, but you never would have guessed it on your own. But alas, I probably learned it from some mouth breather in kindergarten and never got to fully experience what that was like. Now here's why I'm talking about this. Because I actually think our gospel text today is a bit like that. We're so familiar with this story. I mean, if you've literally walked by a church In the last hundred years, you probably know the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately drop their nets and follow him. I mean, this is stuff that you just pick up via cultural osmosis. And it's hard for it to make an impression on us because of that. But I suspect if we were a first century audience reading or hearing this for the first time, I think there would have been legitimate surprise here. It might have briefly at least taken our breath away. I mean, in the bigger story that we've been following along over the last few weeks, Jesus is baptized by John, accompanied by supernatural phenomena and all sorts of loaded new creation symbolism. And then he goes out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan for 40 days. Again, rich symbolism of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness wanderings. But Jesus succeeds where they failed. And then after all of this incredible drama, Jesus goes to a lake and calls four young fishermen. What? We've talked about this before. But in the ancient world, fishermen were not the most educated or socially mobile people. When we imagine this, I think we picture a couple guys leisurely fishing with their rod and reels, bored to tears because fishing is the most boring thing on the planet. Perhaps they're doing this as a form of relaxation on their day off from their white collar jobs at the local Galilean university. But there's nothing like this. These were commercial fishermen who worked long hours, often overnight, trying to catch hundreds of fish so they could simply eke out an existence. They lived their lives with calloused hands and sweat-stained clothes. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Coda in here. Okay, we need to change that, okay? Okay. Coda is on Apple TV Plus. It won Best Picture a couple years ago. It's a phenomenal movie. You all should go watch it. Um, The kid in the movie is from a fishing family. And she works on her family's boat often before even going to school. And so a lot of the other kids at school are just absolutely cruel to her because she shows up to school smelling like fish and she's dirty And her family is actually deaf, which is a a central part of the story. And so when she was young, she didn't even speak correctly, um, at least in their opinion. And her dad has this like raggedy, unkempt beard. And he curses all the time, as does her brother, as does her whole family. And he tells dirty jokes in sign language, and it's hilarious. They're wonderfully endearing people, but it's a hard life being a fisherman and they're rough around the edges, and they're all tough as nails. Fishermen in the ancient world were probably not much different than that, except there were no motors or cranks to be used, so it was even more physical work. Fishermen were blue-collar workers, uneducated, far more brawn than brains. Think about this. Of the first four disciples that Jesus chooses, one had the nickname Rock, and two of the others, twins, were given the nickname Sons of Thunder. That's three of the first four disciples. Not exactly nicknames for the studious type, right? Now, let's contrast that with the type of people who usually became disciples of a rabbi in Jesus' world. Again, we've talked about all of this before, but the Jewish educational system in the first century was elaborate and intense. Sometimes we think about that world and we assume that everyone was just relatively uneducated, but no, the Jewish people took their education, particularly their Torah education, incredibly seriously. And it looked something like this. At roughly five years old, most Jewish boys and girls began going to a school called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer in Hebrew means house of the book, that book, of course, being the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the foundation of Jewish life. In the Mishnah, the rabbis say this, if two sit together and interchange no words of Torah, they are a meeting of scorners. If three have eaten at a table and not spoken their words of Torah, it is as if they had eaten sacrifices to dead idols. Torah was everything to the Jewish people in Jesus' time. So at five, just about every little Jewish boy and girl went to school to learn and memorize the Torah. Then, around age ten the students that were successful at that Herculean task would move on to a level of schooling called Bet Talmud. And Talmud means learning. Lamad means to teach or to learn. So Bet Talmud was the house of learning. And at this point, they would begin memorizing the other two major sections of scripture, the prophets and the wisdom writings. And then, At 12 or 13-ish years of age, most students would effectively become adults. Girls would go learn domestic skills and begin preparing for marriage. Boys would begin learning their family trade like farming or fishing or being a carpenter. But the few that had really excelled at these first couple levels of schooling would continue on to bet midrash, the house of interpretation. The word midrash comes from the Hebrew verb darash, which means to seek. So this was the house of seeking, of seeking the deeper meaning of the text. They would learn the oral Torah, which was the vast and growing collection of interpretations of the great sages of the time. And then they'd also begin learning to make their own interpretations from the text. Now, to have made it to this level of schooling was a great honor. Everyone wanted to get this far and perhaps even farther. But even so, this is where it ended for the vast majority of young Jewish boys that were still there. But the few truly rare talents around the age of 15 would perhaps have the opportunity to become disciples, talmidim in Hebrew, of a rabbi, which was essentially a 15-year, all-inclusive apprenticeship with a rabbi. Because according to Jewish tradition, you could not become a rabbi and have authority yourself until you were 30 years old. The new te- the gospels are sure to tell us that Jesus was around 30 when all of his ministry begins. So 15 years of intense and intensely personal apprenticeship, following, learning. And not just learning what the rabbi knew in an intellectual sense, like we think of education nowadays, but trying to become what the rabbi was in every way, in a multifaceted experiential sense. You might even say in an incarnational sense. Trying to become like the rabbi in every way. Now, the point is this. When Jesus begins his ministry by calling four young fishermen from a lake, from the Sea of Galilee, he's doing something quite unexpected and subversive in his culture. He's not choosing the people that are usually chosen. He's not choosing the people who have passed all the tests with flying colors and demonstrated how unbelievably uh, capable they are at everything. He's choosing the people who were weeded out, perhaps early on, the people who weren't smart enough, the people who perhaps their culture were, were told them that they were blunt instruments. Good people, sure, but limited. This calling at the lake is, from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the upside-down kingdom being revealed, the gospel of grace from the very start. Now, let's turn our attention to sports rivalries. This fall, we here at Ecclesia did our first-ever youth fantasy football league. Teens, parents, and volunteers all participated, and my team was terrible, in part because after about three weeks, I just completely forget about it and don't update my lineup and just get beat week after week after week. But apparently, my daughter, Abby, won the whole league, and I think she got some crumble cookies for her trouble, which was kind of awesome. Now, in fantasy football, one of the most important things is your team name. Your team name is a medium of creative expression. It's a competition in and of itself. My teams are usually abysmal, but my team names are legit. This year, my team name was I Must Break You, which is a Rocky IV reference. Another solid one from the past was Sweep the Leg. You know where I'm coming from. Okay, Karate Kid reference. Do you know... What Greg, your youth pastor's name for his team was this year in our fantasy football league. It was academic fraud. Which, uh huh, because he's an NC State fan, was a not so subtle dig at UNC, my alma mater, and the academic scandal that we had a few years ago when it was revealed that a professor for like 150 years in the AFAM department had essentially let athletes take classes for years with doing little to no work whatsoever. Solid team name burn. Except for the fact that around the same time that UNC was going through this huge academic scandal, NC State was going through a pretty enormous scandal of its own. Essentially, NC State and its shoe apparel sponsor, Adidas, were involved in a scheme to pay players to come to Adidas-sponsored schools. There was an FBI investigation, NCAA violations handed out, coaches fired, a commission headed by Condoleezza Rice was formed to reform college basketball. By the way, how is Condoleezza Rice involved in everything that has to do with college sports? She's on the the playoff committee in football, too. I don't get it. Anyways, it was a thing. People in glass houses should perhaps not throw stones. Now, here's the thing, right? So I bet you right now there's some UNC fans in the room that felt very vindicated by what I just said. I also bet there's some NC State fans in the room that are already preparing to come up to me after church and tell me all the reasons why it's two totally different things and the UNC thing was way, way worse. And I bet there's some Duke fans in the room just sitting back feeling smugly self-satisfied, though I'm pretty sure that smugly self-satisfied is just the natural resting state of a Duke fan. And I can't tell you how much I love the fact that y'all clapped for that. (laughs) Oh, but all of that is actually precisely the point. What is it about our tribes and labels that make us so sensitive to the specks in other people's eyes and so blind to the plank in our own? Why do they imbue us with such a sense of righteousness and righteous indignation all the time, even when it's so obviously a mirage? I mean, college sports is a bunch of teenagers playing games that we made up about a century ago. It is utterly meaningless, and yet we approach it all the time like our identities are at stake. And listen, sports rivalries infect even the most delightful people in this world. My wife, who's running CG today, is an amazing woman. She works in healthcare. She is, generally speaking, remarkably remarkably compassionate towards all people. But if a Duke basketball player was drowning in a river, she would row her boat right by and maybe accidentally hit him in the head with the oar on the way. Sports rivalries are funny because they illustrate both the absurdity and the pervasiveness of our tribalism, of our tendency as humans to create labels and then attach our identities to them, to manufacture hierarchies in order to create a sense of righteousness and superiority. Now perhaps it will come as comfort to you to know that 2,000 years ago in the early church, the period that we all love to look back on and romanticize, this was already a problem. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul wrote this to his brothers and sisters in Corinth. I appeal to you, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you. We're doing great with this these days, by the way. That you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have... What a tattletale, by the way. Just thinking out loud. From Chloe's household have informed me... It's always the Chloe's. Anyways. Have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. In the first century, people were already trying to create brands of Christianity. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul wrote this letter, likely somewhere around the years 52 to 55 AD, so 20-ish years after the miracles of the resurrection, the ascension, Pentecost, we already have people losing the plot who are taking this beautiful gospel of grace and unity between Jew and Gentile and everyone and turning it into a means of competition. Why do we do this? Why does this seem to be such a universal human impulse? I'm sure we could come up with many reasons. But I think the core reason has to do with the fragility of our identities. Human beings live with this haunting fear that we're not good enough. That we're not really loved that we're not really important, that our lives are not really meaningful. And so we live most of our lives desperately grasping for identity and self-worth, something that will show that we matter. I've started reading a book called True Self, False Self by M. Basil Pennington. And if your name is M. Basil Pennington, you're either a great Christian contemplative or a dude on a yacht somewhere. Those are the only two options. Luckily for us, he's the first. Here's a passage that I read this week that made an enormous impression on me. After talking about our true self, as in who we are in and before God, an identity that is unshakable and unmovable because it is a gift from God. And talking about the false self, which is this construct that we create, an identity based on what we have or what we do and what others think of us, he says this, and it's a long quote, but stick with me. Most people Live in the domain of the false self. And it is not a very happy place to live. Oh, we could distract ourselves up to a point, acquiring ever more, doing ever more, being indispensable. Even priests and monks try that. Go, go, go. But those quiet moments do sneak up on us. And we are confronted with the fact that underneath it all, we are still that poor little child who needs everything. And has to bond with others to ensure that we get what we need. Yes, it's a fearful existence living in the false self. And a perilous one in this competitive world in which we live. We must ever be defensive. There are always those who would be happy enough to take away what we have. No matter how hard we have worked to earn it. No matter how much we seem to deserve it. And it's a lonely place. We must never let others get too close. They might just discover what we so fearfully know, that down beneath all that we have and all that we do is that little one who is all need and is ever trying to win the approbation of others in the hope that it might ultimately assure us that we are worth something. It does not take long to construct our false self, We all too quickly, with a good bit of help, even from those who love us most, come to identify ourselves with what we have and what we do and what others think of us. But then it becomes a lifetime project to increase this and protect it at any cost. Some can enjoy the challenge, at least in part, if they can keep the fears, the insecurities, the loneliness at bay. But most don't succeed awfully well. That's why we're not a very happy society. Always seeking catharsis in wars that we turn into crusades at enormous cost to others. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uses the images of a house built on rock versus a house built on sand. And the more and more I think about issues of identity, the more this image comes to mind. When we don't find our identity in Jesus, as a child of God loved and accepted solely by grace, our psyches are like houses built on sand. And we're always frantically running around trying to shovel sand back under the foundation. We pull it in here in this corner, but as we're doing that, it begins eroding somewhere else. So then we run over there and we begin shoveling it under that corner and it just keeps eroding and eroding and we're constantly just trying to shovel it under to prop up the house and keep it from crumbling all around us. But when our identity is in Jesus and only in Jesus, it's like our hearts and minds, our psyches are built on a rock. It's stable, unchanging, unshakable because it was never about what we did in the first place. It was always about what Jesus did. It was always about what God did and who God was. And we were just recipients. I can't say for sure why the wise people of the church put these two texts together on this day. But I suspect it's at least in part because they represent both sides of this coin. The calling of the fishermen from a lake in Galilee is central to the message of Jesus. Because from the very beginning, it was a statement that it was never about them. Peter, Andrew, James, John, they were never good enough, they were never deserving. They were never going to be asked to build the foundation of their own house because it was always about him and it was always going to be about him. Their calling, their invitation was always an act of grace and they knew that. So they were free to learn and love, albeit imperfectly, without the burden of competition and self-definition. But when you don't get this, like the Corinthians were struggling to get this, you will constantly be drawing lines and creating tribes and attaching labels to yourself to try to prove how righteous and worthy you are. You will spend your whole life constantly shoveling sand. And the very act of doing it shows that the foundation is fragile And you need a different one. Recently, I've started doing this thing. When I get stressed or frustrated, when I'm feeling the anxiety of the burden of proving that my existence matters, and I'll be completely honest, I spend most days of my life feeling like I have to prove that my existence matters. But I've started saying this to myself when I feel that coming over me. I've started saying, sorry, your self-worth will not be earned today. It won't. It won't, right? It won't because it can't. No matter what you do, no matter what I do, you will never shovel enough sand under there to hold the foundation. There's not enough sand in the world. But also, more importantly, I don't need to. You don't need to. Because it was already given. It was already a gift. Each one of us has been born into the world of Corinth. Right? And sorry for my brief emotion there. But each one of us was born into the world of Corinth. And the danger is sometimes we can actually be successful in the world of Corinth, which makes us even more committed to the world of Corinth. It makes it even harder to learn the lesson. But let us never forget that we all started as fishermen by a lake in Galilee, not deserving anything, not equipped for the job. And you know what? That's like the best thing I've heard all day. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the gift of unworthiness on our part. Thank you that you called a bunch of unworthy incapable, ill-equipped people to be your disciples. Remind us that that's who we always are. And that should free us to learn and love without the constant need to compete and draw lines and labels and create mirages to make ourselves feel like we matter. We already do. Remind us of that. We love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.